harvesting his sugarcane crop in Sonda village, this farmer recalls the promises made by Prime Minister Narendra Modi when he rode a populist wave to victory five years ago. He has shown us many false dreams. He promised to double prices for our produce. We never got anything. Despite being disillusioned, he still plans to cast his vote for Modi's Bharatiya Janata Party because he sees no viable option. Welcome back to Banter, the official policy podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Max Frost. And I'm Matt Weinset. Today on Banter, we have a great topic for foreign and domestic audiences alike, the Indian elections. We start off with some recent Indian political and economic history, then look forward to what to expect as the 900 million eligible voters in India head to the polls this week, the largest democratic exercise in the world. We also cover what the election might mean for the future of the U.S.-India relationship, and what it could mean for India's relationship with Pakistan and China. And speaking of nuclear confrontations, we of course have to mention the fireworks of this past week when UVA's basketball team proved all the haters wrong to win two of the most exciting basketball games in recent memory to win the NCAA National Championship. We'll, we'll get to the basketball recap at the end, but first we're, we're joined by Sadana Dume. He's a resident fellow here at AEI where his research focuses on South Asian political economy, foreign policy, and society. He writes the East is East column for the Wall Street Journal, which appears every other Thursday. And you can follow him on Twitter at D-H-U-M-E. He's an all-around expert in Indian politics, and we had a very wide-ranging and informative interview with him, even for people like me who know next to nothing about this subject. So without further ado, here is Sadanand. Sadanand, welcome to Banter. Good to be back. So first, you know, there's a lot going on in India right now um, with the elections. So can you just start by putting it kind of in context? In the scheme of Indian history, what is the significance of this ele- this election? So on April 11th, India is going to hold its general election. Uh, 900 million voters are eligible to vote. So every time India votes, it's the largest democratic exercise in human history, just because India has so many people and and they vote unlike in China. Now, what's significant about this election is that Narendra Modi who was elected with India's first single-party majority in 30 years, uh, five years ago, is trying to be re-elected. And that has is profoundly important for various reasons, uh, political stability, the nature of the country's secularism, the future of Indian foreign policy. Uh, there are a whole bunch of things we can get into. But uh, whether Modi comes back or not, uh, is probably going to be one of the, you know, is, is the pivotal political question of the year in India. I don't follow Indian politics that closely, but when I when I read about it, I hear that Modi is often described as a as a right wing candidate. Is the right wing in India does their left right divide match up similarly to the U.S. where they you know the right wing believes in lower taxes and stronger defense spending? Or is it a totally different political spectrum they have over there? That's a, actually a really good question. Uh, I don't. It doesn't match fully. I mean, it matches partly to the extent that the right wing there, too, uh, does want a stronger defense. It tends to be nationalistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to be somewhat more religious in their disposition. But India doesn't really have a, a true economic right the way we do over here. 
right? People who are grounded in the principles of markets, people who believe in Adam Smith, people who believe, who fundamentally uh, mistrust the overreach of government and the state into our economic lives. Uh, so essentially, the dividing line between right and left in India is more similar to, um, I would say, in some places like France, where it's basically on the questions of identity and identity politics. That's the bright dividing line rather than on economic policy. So when Modi was first elected in 2014, um, he was elected as a candidate of reform, economic reform. To what extent has he followed through on that, on those promises that he made then? And to what extent is the platform the same this time around? So I would say that he has followed through to only to a very limited extent. Uh, we've had a few reforms. We've seen a goods and services tax, which stitches India together into a single market. We've seen a bankruptcy code, which makes it easier for companies to exit. There has been some good work also in terms of infrastructure development, roads and ports and so on. But if the idea of reform in an Indian context is fundamentally rolling back the frontiers of the state so that the market can play a larger role, I'd say Modi has been a disappointment. Over the years, he has pivoted away from his pro-reform and market-friendly sounding rhetoric the kinds of things he was saying in 2013 and 2014. And now he doesn't sound, he doesn't say those things. Like he used to say things like maximum governance, minimum government. Uh, He used to say things like uh, red carpet, not red tape. Now he sounds much more like a traditional Indian populist. Uh, If you look at his campaign in this election, he's going to the people on basically two planks. One is being tough on national security and the economic agenda that he's touting is stuff like uh, ensuring that poor people were able to open bank accounts, building toilets, giving them subsidized gas connections, uh, bringing electricity to villages that had not been electrified. So it's very much a healthcare program, health insurance program. So it's very much a, a welfareist model, and he doesn't want to be attacked for being seen as pro-business. And so, and so he's 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 pivoted and transformed himself uh, into a much much more of a, a, a regular populist. So his main opponent is the Congress Party, right, led by Rahul Gandhi. Are, is that party are they picking up the like the mantle of markets and talking about how they're going to champion reform in markets, or are they going to? Are they? Is their platform even more you know socialistic than Modi's is? You basically have left and lefter. Okay. So you know the big you know one of the the big program of that the Congress is championing this is this time is a handout to 50 million families. Basically, what they say is they want to give 20% of the country, uh, which is 50 million families, a handout of, they call it, they don't call it a handout, they call it a minimum income guarantee of about $1,000 a year. And that is extremely generous. Uh, Modi has a similar program, but the Congress version is is more generous. Uh, they do have a few market-friendly proposals out there. They want to streamline the goods and services tax, for instance. They want to give new businesses uh, a holiday from government compliances for three years. But that stuff is at the margins. Yeah. The core of what they're trying to sell is the idea that, you know, if you belong to this bottom 20%, uh, we're going to give you a check for a thousand bucks every year. Can India afford that, or would it all just be debt financed? It would. It would blow up the deficit, in my view. They say they could afford it. Uh, the problem really is with 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 things like a minimum income guarantee and 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 a universal basic income, which is also being talked about, is that the economists who make these arguments 
uh, seem to assume that the politicians will actually rationalize subsidies. Mm-hmm. They'll actually get rid of the existing stuff and replace it with this cash, which would be much more efficient. Um, unfortunately, we know that how politics works in the real world, uh, politicians will never take away something that they've given to the voters. So what the, all they'll do is add this on as an extra. So when you talk about you know, this economic platform, Modi, um, let's talk about economics. When Modi ran last time, he promised, you know, Ache, Ache Din, good, day, uh, good days, um, which now that's kind of the, you know, the Congress keeps saying these good days never came. Um, to some extent, though, isn't it kind of impossible in a country with a, GD, you know, a GDP per capita below $2,000 for over the period of five years to bring good days? I mean, is anyone, is, are people on the right saying that? Or are they saying, no, we've done the right thing. We have brought good days. Well, I mean, I think it's also a relative, right? It's not as though anybody in the villages of India expects their lives, you know, to be. they don't expect India to be transformed into Denmark in five years. Uh, but what they are looking for is, is have, have there been improvements? And here is where, you know, human psychology becomes really interesting because if you have, if you talk to people, like I was just with some sugarcane farmers in, in Uttar Pradesh uh, last week. Now, if you talk to them, they will say things like, and you say, well, are you doing better economically? And they'll say, well, you know, not really. Um, However, they still have a great deal of faith in Modi. They think of Modi as essentially a good person, a selfless person, someone who's not in politics for his family or not in politics to make a lot of money. He's here to do the right thing and they're willing to give him another chance. So if you kind of just look at it in terms of, well, what has he delivered? Uh, I think that there's a there's a degree of skepticism out there. But if you look at it in terms of a willingness to give him a second chance, uh, that seems to be very high to me. So you mentioned the goods and services tax. He also had a program demonetization. What do those two economic programs entail and what's been the verdict on those so far? Well, don't get me started on demonetization. Uh, so, you know, demonetization was this, uh, in my view, utterly harebrained idea to suddenly vaporize 86% of India's cash by value overnight. Uh, it wasn't something that was grounded properly in any economic theory. It ended up causing a great deal of economic pain for no or dubious gains. Why did he do it? Well, I think he, he well, they've, used, they've trotted out about half a dozen different reasons at this point. But the original idea was that this would, you know, go after what Indians call black money, which is basically uh, money on which taxes have not been paid. And so the idea was to go after corrupt people who were hoarding uh, large amounts of cash. Uh, so that was, and, and it was actually a very popular program uh, for that reason. But it wasn't properly thought through. Uh, the really rich people have apartments in London, not cash lying in their cl- closets uh, to begin with. So that, I think, is, you know, at least among economists, is almost universally uh, viewed as a disaster. GST is more complex because for a long time, uh, economists and technocrats have been talking about taking India's market, which is very complex, 30 states, 1.3 billion people, and a whole bunch of different state and, state and federal taxes, and stitching this together into a, into a single, uh, single market. Now, the government has done that, and I think they do deserve credit for that. It's a real reform. Uh, what some people say, including the Congress Party, and I believe correctly in this case, is that if you want a true GST, you can't have a whole bunch of rates. 
the Indian GST is extremely complex, and it should be something more like the Australian GST, which is just a flat 10% rate on virtually all goods and services, uh, instead of this extremely complex version that India has come up with, with something like five or six rates, and the highest rates are well into their 20s. Can you talk a little bit about kind of India's political geography? Um, you talked about Uttar Pradesh or UP, um, I believe, which would have be the fifth most populous country in the world. If, 200 million people. Yeah. So can you talk a bit, you know, if you look at India, um, where does the BJP have support? Where does the opposition have support? So if you look at, essentially, the BJP's support is in the north and the west. And the north is the most populist part of the country. And that's where they won big in 2014. And that's where they're expecting to win big again. They are relatively weak in the south and the east. Now, for an American listener, I think, you know, one of the ways to think about India is that it is, uh, it's a bit more like the EU than it is like the U.S., so, like, you know, for example, if you go to Kerala in the Deep South, uh, they have, first of all, there are many, many different languages. There's 17 languages just on the currency bill. But Kerala in the Deep South has got uh, very high levels of human development, relatively high levels of per capita income, 100% literacy. And then you have a state like Bihar, which which in many cases in the north, which in many in many in, in terms of many human development indicators, would would be lower than than much of sub-Saharan Africa. So you have these tremendous disparities among states, and these states also have their own parties, as you would expect, right? So just just as you don't have the same party running, you know, uh, running for election in Greece and Germany, you don't necessarily have the same parties in different parts of India. And so in the south and the east. Uh, the BJP has not been able to make inroads. Uh, there are very often just powerful uh, local leaders. There's, there, are, there are small exceptions. So, for example, in the southern state of Karnataka, the BJP is quite strong. But generally speaking, um, it's, uh, it's a party of the north and the west. Uh, this year, it's hoping to make some inroads in the east to make up for losses. But if you look at the geography of the country, if you look at the last map, and it was colored saffron, which is the BJP's color, it's just a clump in the north and the west. And then as you go down to the south and the east, there's just, you know, the, that color just fades or disappears. Is that because the north and the west is by the border with Pakistan and the BJP? Is Modi seen more as a security hawk? Or is it just, does that have nothing to do with why they are more supported up there? Well, not nothing. I think that's certainly true that the Pakistan issues resonate more uh, in, in over there. But it's for a complex set of reasons. I would say that it has more to do with language than with Pakistan. Uh, the BJP was uh, originally a party that was kind of born in the Hindi belt. And it has a strong presence in the West also because the Hindu nationalist movement, of which it's an offshoot, uh, was born in the western state of Maharashtra. So those are kind of the, the, the basis from which uh, this movement spread uh, starting in the 1920s and it continues to until now. So, yeah, Hindu, we haven't really talked much about Hindu nationalism, um, but that's obviously a very important thing here. So can you describe briefly what that is and how the BJP is using that for their electoral platform? So it's hard to kind of uh, explain concisely, but essentially I would say it's a... It's a movement that seeks the resurgence of the Hindu people and views that sees them as having been essentially oppressed for a thousand years, first by Muslim invaders, Mughals, 
um, and then later by uh, British colonial rule, and views India's independence uh, from the British as also being an independence from this other kind of alien rule, which was Muslim rule, which is the big difference between, that's the big difference between Hindu nationalism and Indian nationalism. The Indian nationalists said that, look, the Hindus and the Muslims are all Indian and they're in it together. Uh, they're in it together to get rid of colonial rule and, and, and rule ourselves independently. Uh, the BJP and the Hindu nationalists uh, view that differently. They view themselves as the original inhabitants. They view themselves as essentially having first dibs on the country. And they're quite uncomfortable at some level with European or Western ideas of citizenship that are not based on uh, ethnicity or race or blood and soil and are simply based on, uh, you know, collective allegiance to the Constitution or a book. Yeah, and you see in the Western press sometimes, I guess, comparisons to Modi to probably Putin, because he's, you know, emphasizing Russian chauvinism, Erdogan and Turkey emphasizing the Islamic connection, now Modi and the BJP emphasizing the Hindu nationalism. Is that a fair comparison, do you think? You know, to a, to a certain extent it is. Um, to, you know, Modi represents the yearning for a strong man. Uh, Modi represents a revolt of the, uh, shall we say, lower middle classes against a traditional elite who they feel are out of touch and arrogant. Uh, Modi represents national strength. But the difference is this, that because India is so much more diverse, Russia is a pretty diverse country, but in terms of political control, uh, Modi, even at his most powerful, cannot be as politically all-powerful as an Erdogan or a Putin, because they're very strong regional leaders who lead states, and some of these states are as big or bigger than most countries. So there are limits to his power, but there are at the same time um, parallels between Modi and some of these figures. So, yeah, one thing, given the diversity, it's very rare that a leader takes a full majority in the parliament in India. Uh, Modi was the first one to do it in three decades, I believe. Yeah. So now, is it, in your opinion, do you think he'll come back in a coalition, come back at the head of a majority? If he comes back as a coalition, is that good, bad um, in terms of India's future? So, I mean, these predictions are really hard to make. Um, I think the general consensus right now seems to be that he's coming back, but it'll be very hard for him to repeat that Black Swan event of 2014 where he came back with a single-party majority. Anything is possible, of course, in politics. They could end up being a big wave that push pushes him across. He could end up making inroads into new places and end up with even more seats than before. But at this point, that appears to be unlikely. Now, if he comes back and is in a coalition, it'll really depend on who else is in the coalition and what terms are set. Now, ideally, we should hope that uh, should he come back in a coalition, then in a second term, he's going to uh, correct some of the mistakes he made on the economic front, open up things more, be more market friendly, and tone down things on the Hindu nationalism front and be more inclusive and open, shut down some of the shrill rhetoric we've seen from his party members. But um, we're only going to get a sense of what Modi in a coalition is going to look like uh, based on who else is in the coalition and also based on how strong is the BJP in the coalition, right? A BJP would say 180 seats 
is going to have to listen a lot more to its coalition partners than, let's say, the BJP gets to 240 on its own, uh, in which case it, it may not be that different from having its own single-party majority. Mm-hmm. From an American's perspective, which party do you think we should be rooting for to win? Is the BJP a more pro-American party? Are there other pro-American parties that we should hope do better? You know, it's a good question. You know, I think the, the U.S. perspective, the way I see it, is this. In the long term, the U.S. has made a bet that a strong and assertive and economically successful India is good for is good for the U.S. because it complicates China's hegemonic ambitions. Yeah, that's the sort of that's the long term bet. Now, to that extent, to the extent that Modi represents a strong and assertive India, that is good news for the U.S. And I think the U.S. has been quite supportive of him. Uh, including during this recent conflict with with Pakistan. However, there's a caveat, and the caveat is that if Modi is not able to get the economy moving, and if Modi is unable to control hotheads within his own party and movement that could end up kind of deepening social divisions in India across religious lines, um, then he kind of becomes a little bit, you know, more of a pro- more of a problematic figure for the U.S. Yeah, I want to get back to the U.S.-Indian relations in a little bit, um, but just quickly, you had a, you wrote a column the other day in the Times of India um, where you where you talked about how arguably, if there's one thing that's changed the most in the last five years in India, it's bigotry towards Muslims. Um, can you talk a bit about the, about that? How has life changed under the BJP for Muslims in India? Yeah, you know, I had this line in the piece where I said that, you know, if, if the World Bank had an ease of doing bigotry index, <laughs> India would be rising rapidly. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the issue really here is, in, in, in my mind, a lack of verbal restraint. Now, traditionally, the whoever has ruled India from whichever party, they have understood that uh, ruling a large country, which is incredibly diverse, uh, requires you to use your words carefully. And what we've seen over the last five years is very senior people in the BJP uh, essentially say uh, extremely uh, make crude, sweeping generalizations about Muslims. And uh, they've been quite, uh, quite unmindful, right? For example, they don't distinguish between a small minority of Muslims who may be extreme and your regular person who just happens to be a Muslim. Um, And and they have, uh, to my mind, they've really kind of fouled the public sphere. And Modi himself, for the most part, has been quite careful as prime minister. Uh, On occasion, while he's campaigning, he slips, which is not great. But he himself has been careful. But my criticism is that he hasn't uh, been able to rein in people from his own party and uh, has actually, in a way, created conditions where uh, many ordinary Muslims just feel uh, under siege because it's just not very nice to, ha- to hear people from the country's ruling party you know, constantly say things uh, about them that aren't very nice. Has this led to violence in India so far, uh, beyond so, sporadic? So there hasn't been large-scale violence. There has been violence. There have been a series of uh, highly publicized cow lynchings, which are, are cow vigilante attacks, in which uh, basically members of the, you know, broadly related to the Hindu nationalist movement have attacked people, mostly Muslims, sometimes not Muslims, uh, for who they've accused of illegally transporting cattle for slaughter or killing them. And the cow in India for, for Hindus is a sacred animal. 
So there's been some of that. There has not. There have been no large-scale riots. But beyond that, I mean, what I what I was talking about in this article uh, is less day-to-day violence and more just a sense that uh, it's okay to uh, to dump on one set of people uh, in a way that it really wasn't earlier. We talked about the U.S. relationship at some point too. There's a long article in the Wall Street, a long op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this week calling for America to get new alliances. You nodding along like you saw it. Yeah, I and, tweeted it. Yeah, and there, there's a line. Oh, I did not see that. I do follow you on Twitter, though. <laughs> but there's a line in here that, um, you know, the headline is America needs new alliances. And they say that India should be a, like a prime. Prime candidate for yeah, that. Yeah. The most important candidate for such a strategic alliance is India. Do you agree with that? Do you think that that's in the cards? And why why isn't India already a prime uh, ally of the United States? Well, the short answer is India is not an ally because India doesn't do alliances. Uh, I, I do think that their argument is compelling, but I think for it to work, India then has to be the best that it can be. I think an India that, in fact, is growing rapidly, that is modernizing its defense forces, using the resources generated by growth to modernize its defense forces, that is continuing to act as a beacon of pluralism in a region where many countries tend to be uh, monochromatic, you know, Pakistan to India's west and China to India's east, for instance. Uh, I think if India can be the best that it can, uh, a democratic, market-friendly country, then it is precisely, uh, it, it meets pre- precisely the criteria laid out in that, in that op-ed. On the other hand, if India flounders, if it is unable to deal with its economic challenges, if it's unable to modernize its military, if it's if it's un, unable to deal with its diversity in a creative way and ends up turning in on itself, uh, then it automatically becomes much less compelling uh, of an ally for the United States. I feel like one other thing we should probably talk about is Pakistan, given the recent tensions. Has Under Modi, has there been a significant foreign policy shift to a more aggressive, a more... Um, yeah, really just a more aggressive India, or is this kind of just played up and not much has really changed between Pakistan and India? Well, you'd have to divide that into phases, right? When Modi started out, he started out with an olive branch to Pakistan. He invited then Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif to his inauguration. There was the period where they had a little exchange of gifts. I mean, I'm forgetting someone sent a sari to someone's mother and then someone sent a shawl to someone else's mother or something like that. And it was all sort of, you know, there was a lot of bonhomie. Uh, Modi showed up at Nawaz Sharif's granddaughter's wedding. So there it, there seemed to be uh, some momentum for some kind of an improved, an improved relationship. And the general feeling, uh, especially in Pakistan, was that, look, because, Nehru re- because uh, Modi represented the BJP, which is the Hindu Nationalist Party, uh, he would be able to make peace in, with Pakistan more easily in the kind of Nixon goes to China argument. Right. Now, since then, there have been a series of attacks on Indian bases by groups that are uh, based in Pakistan. And so from around 2017, we've seen a real souring of the relationship. And uh, 2016, in fact. And so for the last few years, uh, the relations have have become uh, quite uh, strained. And then you've had the sort of recent uh, military strikes, and they remain quite, you know, quite, quite tense. So I would say, you know, first two years looked quite hopeful in terms of uh, a, some kind of peace process, and since then things have been going downhill. 
Meanwhile, I remember a year or two ago, there's this series of videos between India and China, where I think Indian videos depicted Xi Jinping as like Winnie the Pooh or something. And I think China had some had some derogatory videos back toward India. Is the What's the India-China relationship looking like right now? I think now? the Winnie the Pooh stuff was just a general Chinese stuff. It wasn't really the, the Winnie the Pooh stuff predated their tensions with India. Um, but, you know, that, um, uh, I mean, like, really, how, how ridiculous is that, right? Uh, <laughs> the resemblance so, is uncanny. <laughs> the resemblance, yeah, I think you're going to be censored in China now. <laughs> so, so, we have a huge underground banter, radio-free banter in China. Right. So, you know, the the... the Problems arose in 2017 on the border between India and China, where the actually the border between China and Bhutan, where the Chinese were advancing on territory that India regarded as strategically significant. And so India sent in its troops to get the Chinese to stop building a road. And for a few weeks, things got pretty tense between the two countries. And that's the context in which Chinese state media then began making these cartoons and these videos because I mean in China obviously everything is you know comes top down. Yeah. Uh, the those tensions have since been contained, but in the long term the India-China relationship remains tremendously problematic because India feels increasingly encircled as China makes inroads in all the smaller countries around India's periphery, including Pakistan. Well, Pakistan is not the new part. So Pakistan and China have had a very close relationship going back to the 1960s. What's new on the China-Pakistan side is that now there's an economic dimension there with the CPEC or China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is the which is the Pakistan leg of the Belt and Road Initiative. But the on the it's the other countries that disturb India more because they're that that's new, right? Like I was just in Nepal last week. Nepal was long considered virtually an Indian satellite. Now you have you know. By Nepali standards, large amounts of Chinese investment, similarly in Sri Lanka and the Maldives. And so now there's this kind of jostling for influence mm-hmm. in these smaller countries where for the longest time, you know, India was the unquestioned, um, you know, big power or big kid in the neighborhood. Well, you had a column somewhat recently, too, about uh, Pakistan usually stands up for pan-Islamism, but now with China cracking down on the, the Muslim Uyghur, is that how you say it? Uyghur mm-hmm. population? Pakistan doesn't really seem to be sticking up for them. Is that going to become a sticking point later, or is Pakistan just going to choose China over Pakistan? China, Pakistan does not dare stand up for the Uyghurs, and it's tragic, right? Uh, if you think about, you know, you you could, I mean, it may be distasteful to sort of make these kinds of comparisons, but if you had to make a list of, you know, people who are the most oppressed mm-hmm. uh, on the planet today, uh, I would guarantee you that the Uyghurs have to be on anybody's shortlist. And what the Chinese are doing there in terms of uh, suppressing their liberties, in terms of, uh, frankly, trying to, you know, uh, to wipe out any traces of their culture and religion uh, it would be shocking. But neither Pakistan nor most members of the Organization of Islamic Conference, with the exception of Turkey, are willing to uh, stand up to China because they need China too much and China is just simply too strong. So I think we're probably just about out of time. But one final question. Uh, you said you just got back from India. And the, what is the sense that you have there? Is there a sense of hope regarding the election? Or is it a less optimistic? So I would say it's less optimistic than five years ago. But in general, people are pretty sanguine. Uh, there is no sense of despair. There is a sense of 
almost inevitability that uh, Narendra Modi is going to come back, at least in the north. I haven't traveled in the south this time, so it may be different there. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll be keeping up with the news coming out of India over the next month. Thanks for having me. And remember to follow me on Twitter, Dhume. D-H-U-M-E. Yes. Thank you. Thanks to Sadanand and thanks to all of you for listening. If you are not already, we encourage you to subscribe to Banter on iTunes or the podcast player of your choice. And while you are there, please leave us a positive rating and review. So, Max, you're also a bit of an expert in Indian politics. What do you think is going to happen? I would not call myself an expert by any means, although I am Sadanand's assistant, so I spend a lot of time reading about Indian politics. Um, and you've lived, or you've, yeah, you've yeah, I spent I spent about pretty much about a year in India. It'll be interesting. I think, like you said, it's most likely that Modi is going to come back um, at the head of a coalition. Won't be nearly as strong as he was the past five years, but hopefully that means some good can actually come of his government because so far it's been shaky to see the best. But almost as exciting as Indian politics has been March Madness, uh, which culminated with a University of Virginia victory last night over Texas Tech, the first ever UVA national championship in basketball coming on the heels of possibly the most embarrassing sports defeat of all time when uva last year the number one overall seed lost to the umbc golden retrievers the first time a one seed has ever lost to a 16 seed in march madness yeah so i mean we've been saying all year that the only way we recover from that is to win a national championship because that has never happened before we were supposed to be the best team in the country by all the advanced stats and all the the normal rankings and all the whatever and then we got blown up by 20 points. It wasn't even close. It In the most humiliating defeat of all time. And then to come back from that and win the national title this year is... It's beyond redeeming. It is... It's just... There are no words to describe. Questions need to be asked. Is it the best sports story of all time? I mean, I haven't been around all time, but in, in my time, it's certainly... I mean, it's certainly... You can make the argument. And the game last night... Went to overtime. We were losing by two point by we're losing by three points. Yeah, with well, twelve first, seconds left. First, we had a ten point lead, which then I mean, choked away. So. Yeah, but we were up by three points, twelve seconds left. Yeah. Hit a three to tie the game. Found, yeah. Blocked a shot at the end of the game to put to overtime. We won in overtime. Yeah. The game before against Auburn, we were down I think four, with eight seconds left. Five maybe, or even five. Yeah, because guy hit that three. Yeah, we were down two. Hit a three. And then got fouled with 0.6 seconds left on a three-shot, hit three free throws in a row. Auburn fans are celebrating in the streets, thinking that they had made it to the championship. I still don't know. How did that that happen? I don't know, but it was sweet. And then the game before this, buzzer beater put us to overtime, and we won. The Wall Street Journal had an article today saying the odds of winning these three games in a row for UVA were 1 in 2,500. I'm still not happy with the Wall Street Journal. They, the column they had the day of the national championship said something along the lines of, this will be the most brutal national championship game in recent memory. But, 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 they, but they had another column today by Jason Gay, their kind of humor sports writer, completely saying, look, <laughs> look how wrong the Wall Street Journal was. It's a phenomenal game of basketball. And he was right, completely right. Yeah. So, yeah, thank God all this happened because I think last episode ended with uh, with us saying that if UVA lost, banter was going off air forever. So, fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, Max and I are going to stick around. We don't have to duck our heads in shame. And we'll be back next week with another exciting episode. Thank you. See you then. <laughs>
Virginia with the all-time turnaround title.